I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters of all types. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews with people dealing with all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Here's today's program. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Welcome to Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Fire Chief Bud Backer. He is with East Pierce County Fire and Rescue here in Washington State. We'll be discussing a very recent wildland urban interface fire here in the Western Washington, which is fairly rare. And welcome to the show, Chief. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. And Chief, we've known one another for a long time, over 20 years. Uh, (laughs) We've both been different jobs over that time frame. But the last time we talked back in 2015, I came out and interviewed you in your office about the threat of wildland fires in Western Washington. And recently we had a significant event that your department responded to in Pierce County. Uh, What was the source of that fire that your department responded to? We actually got pretty busy Labor Day evening about 6 p.m. Well, the entire region had a high wind event with east winds that uh, would dry dry things out. We were already very low humidities, particularly for for our area. So we started running calls about six o'clock Monday night of Labor Day on the 7th. And and in fact, I took a look. We actually had between 6 p.m. and midnight, we had over 95 alarms that uh, were dispatched to us. Uh, We entered into a high incident response load uh, protocols where we pended a lot of those alarms, but there were several fires, uh, people calling because they were out of power and their home healthcare equipment wouldn't work, wires down, smoke investigations, the whole the whole lot. And it wasn't just us, it was a region-wide event. There were several fires in the area, so mutual aid was extremely limited. Okay, and were there any fires at that point? Uh, we had actually, uh, our first fire was about uh, 723. Uh, that that evening, that was the f- large fire along SR State Route 167. We actually had fire both sides of the freeway, uh, which turned into a large uh, response uh, for us. We had pretty much all of our units there, uh, and and a whole lot of mutual aid. Uh, that fire was threatening many homes, many commercial businesses. In fact, we had one spot fire on the roof of a large commercial occupancy uh, that we were thankfully able to jump on real quick and the limit, limit damage there. And then during that time, we had another fire in Milton that was dispatched as threatening two homes. Uh, first arriving units found a large outdoor shop building on fire, and were actually able to keep the fire from reaching the home that was on, on the property. But that okay. fire, because we had so many people on the 167 fire, we actually just had one medic unit and one of our brush engines there. It was that that response was heavily handled by South King uh, Fire and Rescue, by Tacoma Fire, and by Central Pierce Fire. Okay, so a busy time. You know, some people listening to this podcast might 
not understand what a wildland urban interface fire is. Can you briefly describe what that means? Sure, that's a fire that begins in, in the, uh, you know, essentially as a forest or a brush fire, but it's in an area where that, where those fuel models are right up to people's homes. You know, we are building homes today in the natural beauty of the Northwest, and uh, this is the hazard that goes along with that. Yeah, just encroachment into the woods, the forest, really. Yes, that's, that's it exactly. And in the area where we had the large fire, uh, known as the Sumner Grade Fire, uh, developments right in the middle of, of the forest, and then a long stretch of homes that, uh, on the top of a ridge built uh, take advantage of the views, essentially hanging right out over the top of, of all this vegetation. Right, right. Well, at what point, I mean, you, you, we had a windstorm, but when did you know you were, really had a major event, that this, this was a significant wildland urban interface uh, fire? So we were dispatched a little after midnight, and I believe probably within the first hour, our, our resources on scene were thinking this, this was gonna get out of hand. I got the phone call around 1.30 or two that said, you might wanna come in for this one. That's AM. AM. AM, which is tough on an old fire chief. And uh, uh, when I rounded a corner here in Bonnie Lake near, near Lowe's and I could see the glow in the sky, that's when I knew because uh, I, I had an idea of the size. I just didn't know what all was threatened yet. Right. And now, you know, when you and I talked again five years ago, you talked about some close calls before. Um, so while the size of this was uh, uh, unusual, but it, the threat is not that unusual. And I think, you were, I remember you saying we, we got lucky before. So how how is your past experience uh, with these types of events? They just didn't get this big. Right, uh, they, don't, they haven't got this big and particularly this fast. Um, our biggest problem were the, the winds that night, the fire started moving towards the north and west and then the wind shifted blowing it southeast which is when it started taking it towards all the homes uh, okay you know, we were we were having a very unusual event of very extreme low humidity yeah, and then when those high winds hit knocking power lines down and blowing transformers which is what started the fire um, there, there was just no controlling it at that point okay and so uh, Explain what mutual aid is uh, between fire departments and fire districts, and how soon did that come into play in this event? You talked about other departments probably responding to their own, but what point were you calling for major resource, resources we, uh, reinforcement? Right, we called for mutual aid right away. In fact, the initial dispatch due to the location where this fire started included Valley Regional Fire Authority from the, from the Auburn area. And, uh, and then we also had Ording and Central Pierce for, real quick. Everybody was in between fires because that same same evening, Graham had the fire where they lost five homes in, in that one. And we actually had sent resources to that. Unfortunately, we're already coming back in our direction. Um, so with the mutual aid, everybody was just busy. We actually had requested strike teams. Uh, we had one strike team that was en route to us from King County that had to be called back uh, never arrived because they started busting a lot of fires in King County. Um, 
the pro problem was with the, the weather we were having, even your, your standard run-of-the-mill home fire became a major event uh, because of the ability of it to spread to nearby homes. Right. Well, so I, we, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so it was around 3 o'clock that morning that we requested uh, fire mobilization uh, from the state because our normal mutual aid resources were depleted. We couldn't access anything within the region. And, uh, yeah, and you so, know, that it goes way back. When I first started in emergency management here in Washington State, it was the fall of 1991, and there was a Spokane fire. If, yep, Hangman Valley. Yeah, remember that. It was later, I think it was probably October or so when that happened, and that was, was over on the east side, but that prompted the whole development of a statewide fire mobilization plan um, that now is in, in force. Luckily, uh, it was used, uh, the ink wasn't quite dry when there was a big fire around Leavenworth, uh, Washington, but that's been used every year now. Um, yes, it's used pretty heavily. And unfortunately, this year, by the time we got in line for resources, there were none left. Oh, okay. Uh, so the while our mobilization was a uh, was approved at the state level, uh, and we received incident management team assistance, uh, we really didn't, we didn't get any suppression resources. Uh, we did get a strike team out of King County, and then a partial brush team out of Snohomish County. Eventually, later that morning. But uh, normally when you call me uh, for state mobilization, they come in with enough resources to where you could pull off the line and, and run all your normal calls. It yeah. took, a few, took a few days for, for that to happen here because there were so many fires going on. Right. Well, how about talking about this? You know, there were fires in California and Oregon leading up to this really big, significant fires. I think 500,000 people evacuated or on alert to evacuate in Oregon alone and i know how, how many brush trucks do you have we uh, have we have two and we had one of them over at the evans canyon fire between natchez and yakima uh, okay, they've been so, over there for the better part of a week before this one started yeah so i the question i have for you how do you balance that you want to be able to help other departments when they're having significant events and you have some resources you can do that but then other points, just like you had, everybody was busy or they were afraid to release their resources because they had to protect their own, you know, district departments. So how do you do that balancing? Act? It's, you know, it's really a call that you make at the time the request comes in. You take a look. And when we had sent those that brush engine with three firefighters on board to uh, uh, the Evans Canyon fire, you know, there wasn't the high risk uh, that that we you know, ended up experiencing here. So uh, it's something that we've done for several years. Uh, our department has participated heavily in state mobilization. Yeah. And while we had one engine and three people you know, away when this fire hit, the experience gained by going to those fires by a lot of our other firefighters who were still here paid off tremendously in their knowledge on how to protect homes. Okay, good. Um... And, you know, part of this whole wildland urban interface thing is you're, you're dealing with people living in their homes, and so you have to do evacuations. Can you briefly describe um, what the different notification levels are and then how that played out for 
this particular fires you responded to? Sure. Uh, there's a level one uh, evacuation notice, which is the lowest, which, which is pay attention to what's going on. And then level two is, hey, things are, things are starting to get dicey in the area. You might want to think about leaving now uh, if you can, and, or at least get ready, get your things packed. And level three means get the heck out of Dodge. It's, it's time to go. Yeah. Uh, and with the in speed and intensity of, of this fire, we went from nothing to level three almost right off the bat for a large portion of, of the area. Uh, the notification process, we worked with the city of Bonnie Lake. Uh, they took care of a major portion of that. Uh, their law enforcement called mutual aid. We had, we had police officers from all over the region here. It was pretty impressive to see the rollout that they had. Uh, and they ended up a lot of it, you know, going door to door. And then, and then once we got to Chris County Emergency Management on, they were able to do their uh, their PC alert uh, notification, similar to a reverse 911. Okay, all right. And um, when would, was that happening? At like 3 a.m. in the morning, or? Yeah, there was a lot of that that hap was happening uh, early on, and and because of the. Uh, intense and rapid fire growth. We didn't have a lot of time uh, to put our heads together up with uh, with law enforcement. It was just take that area and get the people out of there, and uh, and that was about all the all, all the interaction we had time to do. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, well, like I say, like for the people notified that of that, it's kind of like being shot out of a cannon. You, you know, there's no getting ready aspect. They were either prepared or they got the kids, right. threw them in the car and left. I mean, unfortunately it was, you know, being awakened by a knock on the door, you know, by a police officer saying it's time to leave. And so these yeah. people had no time at all yeah. uh, to prepare, grab documents, photos, whatever it was, right. grab the kids yeah. and, and hopefully most, you know, I know some didn't grab their pets cause we were getting phone calls about, Hey, can, you know, can we go check on our pets? And, right. and, uh, right. but, so having a plan is a big, big part of this. So um, I, how many actual homes burned in this event? We, we actually were fortunate. We only lost two, two homes and six, I believe it was six outbuildings. A couple of those fairly large shops with a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, meaningful items in them, but fortunately only two homes while we okay. had hundreds threatened. Yeah, I I saw pictures of that you'd shared with me uh, where houses were backed up right to the woods, and those woods were completely burned, but the houses were left standing. So how how close did you come to really being one of these major events where entire subdivisions burned down? It, I, I it was thought it would have been scary. Yeah, it it was very close. At uh, in the Sumner View development, every time the 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 supervisor in that area thought he was going to lose another home. Another fire engine would come screaming in the development. It was almost like it was made for a Hollywood movie as far as us showing up in the nick of time. Okay. Uh, and then uh, because of how the fire spread in the directions, we were able to move resources from uh, essentially one hot zone, if you will, to another hot zone as, as things would kind of calm down in one area and move them to another. Our, our firefighters fought hard for the, uh, good 48 hours or more on, on the fire lines before we could get them any, any relief. And it literally was playing whack-a-mole with the fire running from one place to another. Okay. 
And, and you know, people don't realize the logistics involved with that. I mean, you got to feed these people, get them water, keep them hydrated. Um, that's another big challenge that you don't have day to day. And, and yep. It was a huge challenge that, that night because we knew that most of them had been out, you know, that they didn't get dinner on, on the 7th because they were already on, on fires. We actually, something I've never ran into before, uh, we actually had called uh, three different restaurants, fast food restaurants in there, hoping to get a bunch of burgers uh, made up. And all yeah. three of them denied our request because they were so busy due to power outages in the area. Uh, they were trying to keep their what they referred to as their normal customers happy. And uh, so we, uh, we went quite a while without being able to, we had plenty of water that we could shuttle around, but yeah. getting food to our people was problematic. And a lot of places that time of day are not open. I would say the first meal at the emergency operations center for an unplanned event is pizza <laughs> type of thing. But you know, those types of places weren't open at all. So, right, and many were shut down due to the power outages. Yeah, um, right, right. They were very widespread. In fact, that that affected communications throughout throughout the area. A lot of a lot of cell phones were out. Fortunately, the our vendor was still in service, but other vendors were out. Okay, and your radio communications held up. Radio, our radios worked worked fine. Uh, you know, of course, we had we had to scramble and grab every spare portable radio we had once we had resources coming in from other areas to make sure we could talk to each other, but uh, we were able to make that work. It was really the cell phone coverage, and then the internet was knocked out with uh, lines down and that. So, uh, okay. you know, like our phone systems, voice over IP, so we didn't have any landline phones uh, to use. We were using everything on cell, cell phone. Because you lost us. power. Because power was lost, and then there was, uh, I think some Comcast fiber was busted somewhere as well. Okay, all right. Well, listen, you've worked in multiple fire agencies in King County. That's metropolitan uh, Seattle. And I call much of King County urban forest. And Pierce County is the same. I'd, uh, I was over in the Gig Harbor area of Pierce County and south of that. And it is an urban forest. <laughs> it's like you took homes and just built them in the woods there. And they're, these are heavily wooded areas. Sometimes they're even within the suburban cities, green belts running between them. You know, what should people do now to protect homes from future wild fires? One of the, the big places people can go to, to get tips and, and even programs on how to uh, protect their homes is firewise.org. It's a national uh, organization run by the National Fire Protection Association. But the big things are, are just making sure that flammable materials are not on your home or up to your home. Uh, removing leaves and pine needles from your roof and gutters, um, placing screens over your uh, events yeah, so that know, embers. That's, that's something I plan on on doing because that, you have to have a, a smaller vent or smaller, smaller screen than what typically is installed on homes. Right. Yeah, you, you know, you still want the air to be able to move, but you need to be able to knock down the, those embers. And that was the, what we saw a lot of, you know, that was what was causing the spotting and the fire to grow in many places where the embers flying through the air. Okay. If you have large decks, put a screen around the bottom of the deck to keep things from blowing up underneath there. Uh, burning materials being blown by the wind, 
you know, that gets underneath your wood, your deck, hanging over the edge of your view home, and suddenly the whole place is up. And, I, you know, I always see people with the wood pile stacked right next to the house. I mean, that's right. A pretty it's, easy one. it's certainly convenient during the wintertime to have that wood pile right there, but you need it to be away from the house. Any Anything that you're storing, uh, wood piles, you know, you see a lot of plate cases, you know, people are putting two by fours and things like that, or just storing, you know, hopefully trying to keep the, the rain off of them a little bit. But uh, you need to get that stuff away from the house, uh, particularly during fire season. Okay, well, you know, a pet peeve of mine is uh, cedar shake roof. And for everybody listening, I've got one. I even had to replace <laughs> mine. Was cedar shake, I had to replace it because of covenants in the neighborhood where I live with another cedar shake uh, roof. Uh, it just irritates me extremely. Yeah, so, it should. It I, should. I, I just, you know, I, uh, they're considered, you know, a higher quality roof, aesthetically pleasing and all that. But what would you have to say about cedar shake roofs other than I think they're like have kindling. I, I would tell you that if the Sumner View development had cedar shake roofs, we'd have lost the entire development instead of just two homes. Okay. Uh, they were built with uh, composition uh, shingle roofs, and and uh, and and now I think a lot of places you know are requiring non-flammable roofing materials to be to be placed on on roofs. It's cedar cedar shakes, uh, you know. And I fought this uh, when we were when I worked up at Eastside in uh, King County. There were areas up there similar to yours that the covenants required people to replace with with those. That's that's you're asking to lose your home almost automatically if you have a wildfire nearby. Yeah, right. Well, hopefully times are changing. But you know, one of the things on this, um, I'm sure you've. That's a fire chief set and different community meetings that on building codes and people love to complain about building codes um, <laughs> when they want go to want to do something and all the requirements placed on new homes or when remodeling. Where are some of the codes that help save the day in this incident, do you think? Well, I would believe in this one would be the non-flammable roofing material uh, first and foremost. Uh, this development, the houses were, were built with a little bit of distance uh, between them. I mean, not a ton, but certainly not, you know, the six feet that you see in other, other developments, uh, had, that which would have made it a lot harder uh, to cut the fire off at the homes that did catch fire. Um, and then the streets were decent size uh, in this area as well, allowing us to be able to drive past block fire engines. You see a lot of communities now are going with those skinny streets, uh, trying to save room for building more, more buildings, and you get one fire engine in there, and the place is blocked off. And in fact, many times, even just people parking on both sides of the street, uh, you know, there's high likelihood we're going to swap paint trying to get a fire engine going down the the road in there. They're just not building roads wide enough anymore. Okay, and I haven't. Turning radius, I know it's it's another aspect for homes, you know, with their own long drive or a lane going back into a forested area, wooded area. I know sometimes they're not thinking about a fire truck coming to them. Right, right, and and that's that's huge. That's where in a lot of our areas, if those long narrow driveways are greater than 150 feet, 
that will ask for the home to be sprinklered. But uh, the thing about home fire sprinklers is that protects the home from a fire that starts inside the home. They're not gonna do anything for that place during a wildfire event like this. Okay. Well, I kind of last thing here, bud, what, what do you have to say to uh, the, all the departments and people or whoever, police that responded to help you guys in this fire? It's a, uh, it was, you know, pretty humbling to see the, uh, the response that, that we did get that, that first night, I will say that had it not been for some of the mutual aid resources that uh, got in, into the Sumner View development that you know, we would have lost more homes. So boarding, and by the time we had that, that was Tuesday, af Tuesday afternoon. So even some of those zone one uh, from the north end of King County engines were in there helping to save, save the day. Couldn't have done it without them. Okay. Uh, we, we would have lost lost more more homes. Uh, the police departments, their efforts on, on getting out and, and doing the evacuations, DOT, those guys on um, blocking the roads uh, for us. I know a huge inconvenience on shutting down uh, Highway 410 had to be done though. I mean, not even for our operation, but when that fire, fire blew over, uh, people would have had potentially charred paint they've been driving on that road yeah and that that road cut off access for tens of thousands of people yes it did for a week yeah right okay well listen this brings us to the end of the podcast thanks to fire chief bud backer east pierce county fire and rescue for joining me today on this podcast you bet thank you for having me i appreciate being able to, to share our experience with you and a reminder to everyone that the fire season is not over in California. It's actually only just really now begun. Uh, so lastly, a reminder to everyone to be safe. Think about how a future fire might impact you or your family. Uh, do something today to protect your home and your family. Check out firewise.org and what you can do now before the next fire happens. Uh, thanks for listening and tune in again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's Disaster Zone podcast. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters and what people and organizations are doing about them. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.